Hello, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to another episode of Crazy Money. This is your host, Paul Ollinger. You knew that. Also with me today for this special Crazy Money Year One in Review episode is the editor and producer of this podcast, Mike Carano. Mike. Good morning. Welcome to your house that you've helped build. <laughs> Mike oh, is very important to the show for many reasons. One, because he takes out all the ums and ahs and makes the audio sound as good as possible given the rough natural resources with which he works. But he's also the person that inspired me to start this podcast. In fact, he tricked me into it, but I'm very glad that he did because I've had a great time this year. And what we're going to do today, Mike, is we're going to run through some of the many highlights that we both picked out from our favorite moments. Mike, we've talked to so many great people about what money means to them, what their money journeys were like, and it spanned the spectrum of everyday people to authors, to journalists, to academics, to people that I know and love intimately, including my wife and my dad. What have been some of your favorite parts of what we've done so far? One of the surprises that came out when I quit my job, I didn't think that you could relate to this feeling I had of just leaving everything behind and, you know, being lost and just all of that. But then I heard you talk about it on two different episodes and I was like, oh yeah, I didn't ever take into account that you might've felt the same thing. I just assumed it was blissful for you. Because I had saved money and I got more financial freedom. That's kind of the root of this whole thing. All my life, I'd fetishized money. Then I made enough money to retire, live the rest of my life without working. So I'm like, well, screw work. What am I getting from work? It's just a pain in the ass and it's stressful, et cetera. And so I bailed on work and it was great for three months. As we'll hear a clip from Brad Klontz, the financial psychologist talk in a Mm -hmm. few minutes. That was hilarious, by the way, when he's nailed it like that. It was a great three to six months. And then after that, I was like, wait a minute, what am I doing? What am I doing with my life? And I never anticipated that. I had never heard anybody say anything like that, that I could remember. And that's where I started reading about money and retirement and happiness and That's where I started writing about it, which is now in the form of a book draft. And that's where it all started. So by the time you and I started working on the project that you're leading and then started working on this project, the podcast that we're on right now, I had been lost for for years. Now, as your work, many of your clients are ultra high net worth individuals and families, including billionaires. What kind of problems could billionaires possibly have, Brad? Right. Yeah. So once you hit a certain socioeconomic level, you cease to be human and you no longer struggle with existential questions in life, like meaning, purpose, worrying about your children. You know, all the problems are utterly erased if you get enough money. It's a really interesting issue. So really what I work with people around is the fact that it actually isn't true. Um, And the world believes now that you should no longer have any problems and you have nothing to complain about. And if you believe that, if you believe that money is going to be the answer to all of your problems, I mean, God forbid you get a bunch of money because all of a sudden it's like looking behind the, the curtain and seeing that there is no wizard. That experience of getting money and then sort of learning what you don't know you don't know. One of the reasons I started this podcast was because the experience I had when I, I made some money at Facebook and I just, I said, oh, I have enough money. I'm just going to not work. And shortly thereafter, I felt depressed and lonely and adrift with no identity whatsoever. Do you see that a lot with entrepreneurs and these kinds of families, people who sell their company and then all of a sudden have a lot of dough? Paul, that is the number one referral I get. 
<laughs> it's really? the number one person who, that I get who has had an experience exactly like yours. My guess is you had a fabulous first three to six months, right? It was of awesome. Like, uh, <laughs> yes, yes. Yeah, that's sort of that's sort of the pattern, right? And of course, of course, all your listeners too, you, you have a long list of things you would love to go do. Absolutely. And then what you don't really realize, though, is that effort you were putting in for you at Facebook was actually feeding a lot of psychological needs for you and emotional needs for you. And for a lot of men, too, frankly... Mm-hmm. It, it fills a fills a social need for them that we're not necessarily great at filling outside of work. One of the biggest things cemented into my brain from your podcast, from your conversations with these folks, is really there is no such thing as retirement. You get joy from work, you get satisfaction from work, and I also think myself and probably most people have always thought once I have this, then I'll have that. Yeah. We heard Tony Duff talk about the if-then syndrome, and, and I think it's very common with everybody. I'll be happy when I lose 10 pounds. I'll be happy when my bank account has has six figures in it. You know, I'll be happy when I'm recognized by the world for that. So back in 2012, I just got a big book deal from Random House. Mm-hmm. I was seeing my daughter or talking to her every single day. I got through family court. Me and my ex were getting along great. Mm-hmm. I'd made all of my amends. And I was sitting there on the couch and like, I'm not happy. Something is wrong with me. So I went to the computer and I Googled the pursuit of happiness Mm -hmm. because I wanted to know what it meant in 1776. What I discovered was happiness meant honor, integrity, how you live your life. And I'm like, what? (laughs) It doesn't mean. But I have a Porsche. (laughs) Right, right. Fancy cars and great vacations. Right. And I always thought happiness and pleasure were synonymous. Right. So on that day, I said, you know what? Fuck happiness. I don't even want to be happy. Mm-hmm. And I kind of made serenity my goal. Right. And ironically, since that day, I've never been happier. We talked to the author, Ryan Holiday. We'll hear him in these clips talk about the importance of every day and appreciating the every day. And it's like, no matter how successful you are, you're going to die and you won't be remembered. Second favorite quote in the entire show. One of the key grounding points of stoicism is the concept of memento mori. Mm-hmm. And literally translated, remember, you will die. Yes. So if we're all going to die, does any of this matter? No. What he goes on to say after saying that none of this really matters is that what really matters is today. What really matters is right now. And I think that the more you read across philosophies and across eras and across geographic regions, the more the collective human wisdom comes down to today and gratitude and focusing on the people around you and yourself and not about outward accomplishments or the stuff you can buy. That idea of presence, if it helps you hit a a 95 mile an hour fastball better, I think it's going to help you make it through an argument with your wife. I I think that the skill is the difficult thing is the difficult thing. And very few things are hurt by being more present as you do them. Mm. So you shouldn't argue with your wife over text. Is that what you're saying? Uh, Yes. Or, I mean, how often are you having a a seemingly regular conversation that escalates to a serious conversation that escalates to a full-blown fight? You sort of slept, walked into because you were, you know, checking <laughs> checking your email at the same time and right, wasn't quite right. paying attention to the slowly escalating body language or, or whatever. Yeah, your podcast has really evolved from money won't make you happy to what is important in life, and you know, it's coming down to the basic things: social engagement and finding something that you enjoy. And it's really, really become spiritual and therapeutic for me. 
And I wonder if that's a direction you intended on or if you just found yourself on that path or no, I started this cause I was hoping to get more comedy gigs at the ha ha hole in Knoxville, Tennessee. Um, good club. Yeah, no, I mean, I, I didn't intend for it to take on anything, but the more I started talking, the more it just became what it was about. And I mean, we had the first interviews with Jessica Ma in Los Angeles and then at Dr. Drew's house on his couch. I had a father who was profoundly affected by the depression, certainly had food distress, but my father never forget that and was pounding on me from the age of, I'd say under the age of two. And I remember him with this BS, but it really picked up around the age of two, which is if I needed like clothing or something. First Mm -hmm. of all, they sort of spoiled me, but whenever I got things, there was guilt, guilt, guilt. (laughs) Right, like, like, oh, kid that has everything. (laughs) What are we going to do with you? You know, they're like teasing me and guilting me. Right. And then when I needed clothing, my dad had this thing he would tell me, and he told me this story a thousand times, and every time I believed him, he said... Oh, you need shoes? Well, when I was a kid, walked through the snow in Chicago with holes in my shoes. They tell, they tell me a story right. about Chicago and the distress, and we lost everything. And then you can buy shoes, but tomorrow I'll be in the poorhouse. It's okay. It's all right. I'll be in the poorhouse. You, you can wave to me from the poorhouse. You can see me. I'll stand in the window. Right. And he would tell me these elaborate story about this place that I had constructed in my head. Mm-hmm. And this went on for years that tomorrow was the end of the world yeah, and that I was going to cause some sort of financial destruction of the family. Your selfish need for shoes was going to pull down for the anything. My, my any need for anything was yeah. going to result in disaster. And, and I was specifically the, the cause of it. And then we interviewed Ron Lieber in New York City about how to teach your kids values through money. My favorite concept that came out of your book is something called the land's end line. <laughs> So let me just state right away that I've had no contact with Land's End about this. They haven't sent me any anoraks or whatever the other <laughs> stuff was that they make. Right, no parkas. Um, but, you know, I, I grew up in the, the Midwest and that catalog came over the transom like clockwork. And I remember talking to the ladies in Dodgeville, Wisconsin that you'd see in the commercials with the headsets, right? Mm-hmm. So, you know, I, I, I grew up on that. And, and to me, Land's End is kind of a stand-in for any brand that delivers you know, high quality, excellent customer service, decent value, right? It's not showy, but it's not cheap. Mm-hmm. It's sort of straight down the middle. You're right? not going to see lands in any rap videos anytime soon. No. I'm not um, blinged out at the club in my lands in duck boots. So we decided in our household that when there was something that our daughter thought that she wanted and perhaps even needed, Mm -hmm. we were going to place that thing on what we called the want-need continuum, right? So let's say that it's a pair of rubber rain boots. So you draw a horizontal line on a piece of paper turned sideways, and over on the left side, you've got need, and over on the right side, you've got want. And so what you have to decide in every category of spending as a parent is how much is enough? Mm -hmm. How much rain boot is enough? How much underwear is enough? How much baseball glove, soccer cleat, musical instrument, you know, et cetera. And so in the rain boot category, 
over on the far left side, on the need side of the continuum, the sort of just enough rain boot is, you know, whatever it is that you'd get at Famous Footwear or Walmart or, you know, it's the kind of the generic no-name brand or the house brand that maybe costs 25 bucks for a kid. All the way over on the want side of the continuum, uh, the most expensive rain boot I've ever been able to find for a child in the United States is something called Hunter Boots. Sure. So you see those on a lot of uh, upper middle class and above, uh, you know, younger females. Some little boys wear them too. Has a big honking label that just says Hunter. Tennis, but, tennis moms wear them. Oh, right. I've uh, noticed. Yes. That is, you know, otherwise just a plain rubber welly. But those can yes. cost 80, 90, 100 bucks. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so what we decided was that in the rain boot category and in many others, we would be willing to pay for the Land's End items or the Land's End rain boot or the Land's End coat or whatever it is. And you sort of draw that Land's End line vertically about halfway through the one need continuum uh, at 40 or 45 or 50 bucks for the rain boot. And then we said to our daughter, if you want uh, something that costs more, as long as it's not on the banned item list, right? So if you wanted, a, banned item list. If you wanted a plaid Burberry rain boot, yes. uh, that's not a brand that we're going to let you know an eight-year-old walk around in, right? Okay. But if you wanted the Hunter boot, say, and we decided that was not on the banned item list, um, that that was not too extravagant of a something for you to wear on your feet, you could have that, but you were going to have to pay the extra money beyond what it would cost at Land's End. So, you know, the extra 40 or 50 bucks, that would have to come out of holiday money, birthday money, or allowance. And only then would we find out just how much you wanted it. She would have to make a trade-off, right? right. And that's what grown-ups do. Every day we make trade-offs. It's about adult making. Right. Right. And a big part of being an adult is learning to make those trade-offs and doing so safely. The more people that I started finding who write about money are talking about a lot of the same things. And they're talking about the hedonic treadmill, which means that we as human beings get used to what happens to us. We have a certain set base of happiness. And if we win the lottery, eventually we're going to return to that base. And if we we lose a limb, we're going to return to that base. Like we're very good at compensating to keep ourselves alive, no matter like if something incredibly quote good or incredibly quote bad happens to us, we figure it out. It's the if then thinking we talked about a minute ago. It's, it's about understanding the things that lead to true happiness past, by the way, you know, a certain subsistence level of income. So what are those things that make us happier? Being with friends, helping others, finding meaning in our lives, being good at something, having a place in the world where we feel comfortable. Those are the things that kind of matter. And once your kids have enough to eat and you're not worried about paying next month's rent, money and the additional, you know, additional millions of dollars doesn't make you that much happier, though it does lead us to answer my life has more meaning the higher up we go and the more we have the opportunity to sort of luxuriate beyond the base necessities. Yeah. <laughs> That's the best I can come up with is yeah. Yeah, man. Well, touching on that, you know, in the Lori Santos interview, that monkey stuff was fascinating, finding out that even primates have this, the grass is greener attitude. Lori Santos is a psychology professor at Yale University. I'm sorry, I don't have her full title right now, but she teaches, among some other administrative duties that are very important, she teaches a class called Psychology in the Good Life, which is the most popular class in the history of Yale University. 
that our objective circumstances don't really affect our happiness that much. It's the circumstances we're comparing against other people. You know, so it's not the amount of money you have that makes you happy. It's your amount of money relative to other people. And you see this in so many different domains. Like the quickest way to make somebody unhappy with their sex life is to tell them that other people in their age range are having more sex than them. You could be perfectly happy <laughs> with your sex life, but you find out other people are having more sex. You're like, oh my God, my sex life is miserable. And that's true for sex lives. It's true for salaries. It's true for grades. It's true for how many parties you go to and so on. And so, you know, the work we did with the monkeys show, the monkeys care what other monkeys are getting and they won't like eating a delicious cucumber if they find out other monkeys have something more delicious like a grape. Like, Mm. you know, this is built in by Mm. many years of evolution. But, you know, the monkeys don't have apps that are showing them what other people are getting in real time. And apps that are curated, like Instagram, to look more awesome than they even need to be, right? What I love about that monkey clip is it plays into one of the things that you see a lot when you read about money and wellness and happiness. And all of these things come back to the fact that our brains play tricks on us, that we are not good at predicting what will make us happy. And we, as primates, judge our happiness from a financial standpoint less on our absolute affluence than on our relative affluence. So people would rather live with less money around people who are poor than live with more money around people who have a little bit more than that. That fact blew me away. Brian Portnoy, who is the author of The Geometry of Wealth, what he's exploring in this book, what does wealth really mean? And what are the things that lead to true happiness? Why do most people invest? What what are they trying to achieve? The answer is more. More what? I mean, I, I just, okay, this is why economics and finance is mostly just a huge load of bullshit. Like, what is it all about? It, well, the basic utility function, it doesn't matter how fancy the math gets, the basic utility function in economics is that more is better than less. And the world is just absolutely like their backs are breaking under the amount of stuff that we have. If being truly wealthy is underwrite a meaningful life, let's start with the meaningful part and then go to the underwriting part. The more of what comment, holy moly, does that echo around in my brain constantly. I always thought, I just need more. I need to make more. I need to get more of this. I need more of that. And it's just this never-ending process that leads to nothing. It's just accumulation of a bunch of junk. (laughs) It's weight on your shoulders. Like When you told me I need to get rid of some of this clutter and get rid of some of these toys and some of this stuff that I have lying around, it's clutter and it's confusing and it's distracting. And we as people, it seems inherently just want more stuff. We need to go get more. And maybe we've been taught that from companies marketing to us, but trying to get off that bandwagon is very difficult. Yeah. I think his definition of wealth was funded contentment. That very point of starting with the goal, he wrote a good bit about this. Start with the goal in mind. What does make you happy in life? Okay, now what do you have to do in order to earn enough money to do that? Paul, that is a difficult question to be honest and answer. And it reminds me, you've asked your guests this a couple of times and you've told me this and you said you need to know what you want. And that one just stumps me, man. My brain just goes blank when you say that. No, honest to God, what do I want? Like, what do you want? I don't know what I want. Maybe I'm afraid. To ask yeah. for it, maybe, I, maybe I'm afraid to admit what I want, but that is such a tough one. What do you want? Well, I think my suspicion about you is, is similar to some of the things that I want. 
I think everybody wants to be happy if they really boiled it. I want to be happy or I want to be content or I want to be, I want to be absent of this voice in the back of my head that says, you're wasting your life. Yes. Check Facebook yes. again. Check yes. Facebook to see if there's an answer. I think that's what we want. And yet what we go about trying to solve those wounds or to quiet that voice by buying shit, by yeah. saying, yes. oh, I'm going to get promoted to senior vice president of schmuckety schmuck over at this prestigious company. And we think that accomplishment or that recognition from the outside or that a certain amount of money and cool watches yeah. will quiet those barking dogs in our heads. And it's not the answer. I mean, honestly, it's okay to say, I want to do good work. And that's one of the reasons why retirement was such a mess is like, you're not doing anything. And part of this podcast is my desire. I want to do good work. I want to do work that's worth doing. And yeah, I'd like some people to, I enjoy it when people tell me it's helpful to them. I like it when I'm on stage and I make people laugh. I want to do good work that's worth doing. I think you want to do that too. Of course. Although you're having a harder time admitting to yourself that you really want to do it. When when you were working full-time at Facebook and whatever satisfaction you got from that between the bonding experience, being at work, bringing home money, whatever goals you were setting and achieving. And then in relation to this podcast and or stand up, do you get the same satisfaction out of these two things or is there still something that's missing? I think there's always going to be something that's missing, you know, when we tend as human beings to overvalue the things that we don't have and to undervalue the things that we do have. And what I'm trying to cultivate is the ability to tell the difference and to value what I do have. So on one, you know, you wish you could have kind of both like, It'd be fun to do this in sort of a, in a manner that where there were kind of regular interactions with more people that I want to be around, you know, like, like if it was, it was a regular job with a schedule. Well, maybe, you know, like I think comedy, it'd be great if comedy was kind of like a nine to five gig (laughs) where, you know, like if you could go, if I just become a writer in last week's episode, which won't be in this best up the Buddhist business professor Dominic Holder at London Business School. In his book, he talks about the greatest gift we're all seeking is the ability to be ourselves. And I think one of the number one challenges of working in the corporate world is the fact that we have to wear work masks and we can't say what we really think and we have to keep our mouths shut. I found that to be crippling in the work world. And at a certain point, it kind of blew me up. Mm -hmm. (laughs) What if you got to choose every single person you got to work with and it could be like hanging out at the green room from nine to five with health insurance. Yeah. It'd be like the yeah. greatest job in the world. I know. Hang out with the funniest people on the planet, have a beer and get paid for it. Like real pay. That would be yeah. phenomenal. Well, here's what I meant though by that question. So you go to work, you work, let's just say hypothetically an eight hour day, you come home, you feel like you did your job. Like I wonder if when you came home after a day at Facebook and when you come home after recording the podcast, does the podcast feel like, well, that's not a real job? Yes. I mean, in the sense that I continue to remind myself why I'm doing this. And I recorded an interview with a guy named Bruce Daisley, a former head of Europe for Twitter that has this book coming out in a month called Eat, Sleep, Work, Repeat. And in it, he's talking about like how work should evolve to be more human and, and more survivable, really. But he talks about the difference between intrinsic and extrinsic motivations, i.e. internal versus external. And when I was working before, I thought I was only working for a paycheck that is extrinsic compensation. 
and I was getting a lot of intrinsic compensation as well. There's a lot of things, satisfaction of job well done, a challenge and working with people that I truly love. You're getting that stuff, but the majority of it is like you're doing it for the extrinsic motivation. You're working for someone else. You're working for a paycheck. You're working for benefits. Whereas the podcast and comedy is all intrinsic motivation. Yeah. It's all about the feel of, if you would do something for free, that's intrinsic motivation. That's interesting. That's the motivation. Like This is work that is all about me being the best me and trying to articulate what that looks like. It's not just about making people laugh that makes people love comedy. It's when you're on stage trying to find, even when you suck, when you first start out, you're trying to find the truth inside of you. That's what takes you 10 years to figure out as a comic. But that's where, that's where like the nirvana of comedy comes from. I think the thing about doing this podcast and going to work at Facebook that's different is you had more social interaction and it was more of a team effort. And I think there's a level of satisfaction that comes from that that you can't get from sitting alone in a room talking to somebody over the computer. Hey, look, if you're out there as a working bee and you think that you want to be a writer, you've got the great American novel inside of you. Let me tell you something. Unless you like being by yourself for eight hours a day, <laughs> yeah. you're not going to like being a writer because that's what it's about. Yeah, it requires just, focus and tuning out other people, and it's the opposite just, of being social. And that might be great for some people, but I'm telling you, if you're a social animal, if you're in sales and you think you want to sit by yourself for nine hours a day, it's a big adjustment big adjustment, especially when there's nobody out there telling you what a great job you did for five years at a time. <laughs> five years before you get a little boost in your ego. Five years before somebody gives you like a, and granted, you might hate your quarterly reviews right now, but let me tell you, when you give, you go, whatever, what's uh, 20 quarters with no evaluation, you oh start to go, what, what am I doing with my life? <laughs> I know you're a fan of Adam Carolla and Ryan Holiday, and I wondered yeah. if there were extra nerves doing those interviews compared to some of the others. Well, with Carolla, you know, you walk into his Carolla world out in LA, yeah. and it's funny in this clip, he's about to talk about frugality at home, and yet. <laughs> He's got this studio that's a building with a studio and it's got cars in it. And then a block away, he's got this garage and he probably employs 20 people. And he's got in this garage, he's got about $8 million worth of race, antique yeah. racing. Cars. Oh, one car was 4.3 million. Yeah, classic racing cars that used to belong to Paul Newman. And you're just like, holy shit. The thing that's weird is how sort of weirdly casual everyone else is about it. You know, mm -hmm. like my family, there's a few things they do that blow my mind. But one of the ones that really blows my mind, I don't know why, like if I ever ordered a smoothie or like a specialty drink, when I was done getting what I could get through the straw, I'd pop the lid off and then use the straw like a spatula to see if I could scrape any more foam off the side That's and right. then just lick it. Like I'd use it like... They show like monkeys eating ants by taking a stick and putting on top of an anthill and then <laughs> licking it off. Like he's using a tool to get more out of that Starbucks cup. Like that's yeah. what I do. And then I'll like come home and there'll be some full blown, you know, Starbucks or Jamba Juice creation that cost $8, you know, and it has like five eighths of an inch off the top of it. And it's like sweating out, sitting on top yeah. of the countertop. And I'll go like, 
whose is this? And my wife will go, that's mine. And I'll go, when did you get it? She's like, yesterday. And I'll go like, do you want it? And she'll go, <laughs> I'm done with it. And then I'll go, well, I don't, all right. I don't want to be a dick, but why did you order this super passion fruit smoothie if you didn't want it? It was only $11. Yeah, and then she'll go, I just wanted a sip. <laughs> I'll go, oh, okay, I'm putting it in the refrigerator because I don't want to dump this down the sink. And they go, okay. <laughs> like it's, it's so, it's mind-numbing. It's also kind of weird that, as the person that underwrites all this stuff, yes. I don't get a vote. The reason it resonates, the reason it resonates with me is because I feel this every day. My dad, from whom we'll hear, talks about frugality. And my dad was, we lived in a very austere home, not as, not as austere as Adam's, but there was nothing that was wasted in our house. I walked into Corolla and what I, all I'm thinking is I want to do a good job. And, and yeah, I'm, I was a little more nervous with Adam than I was with other people. With Ryan... I'm a big fan of his, but I, I was prepared. I've read all his stuff. I was just looking forward to the conversation. At some point, I had this idea that I wanted to become a millionaire by the time I was 25. Like, I just had this mm -hmm. goal. It didn't end up happening exactly like that. I forget what age it, it actually ended up happening. But first off, like, nobody throws you a fucking parade. Like, nothing happens, right? Like, it doesn't, cha <laughs> it doesn't, cha doesn't change anything. <laughs> totally true, man. It's totally, totally uh, true. It, not only does it not change anything, it turns out that that's not even, that the money is actually a byproduct of the process of doing the things that you want to do. Jim Collins has that concept of a flywheel where it's like when you get everything lined up and you really give it, uh, eventually it just starts operating under its own power. And then you find out that even your sense of what a goal was like, Hey, I want to accomplish X was actually naive and probably underestimated what the real potential you know, outcome was. So I, I think it, it, it's much more about like finding something you really enjoy doing that you're really good at that you would do for free, even if you weren't getting paid. When you sort of find that lane where you're the only person doing your thing or you're the absolute best one doing that thing, the, the money or the recognition they follow. But the benefit of it is that you actually care less because what you actually are excited about is that you keep getting to do the thing. On the one hand, I love meeting the authors of books that I've enjoyed. I love the opportunity to talk to celebrities like Dr. Drew or Adam Carolla. I love meeting Nobel Prize winners like Sir Angus Deaton, who we'll hear from in a minute. But the comments I get from the personal interviews I have with just regular people like my wife, my dad, one of my favorite conversations was with my friend AJ Jane. And again, one I've gotten a lot of comments on, and I think because there's real human vulnerability that AJ shared with us. I'm in a book club with AJ, and one Sunday morning, he just started sharing the story about what happened to him when he lost everything. In a nutshell, his story is that he was a very successful marketing professor. He's got a bunch of degrees. He's got a PhD, and he was in the business world. And then a couple of things happened. He started his own company, and he borrowed money on, the, on his own credit cards, didn't take a salary. He had stock worth like $100 million at the top of the dot-com boom. And six months later, everything goes to shit. His marriage goes to shit. He owes $175,000 on his credit card. He loses his house and he's trying to put Humpty Dumpty back together again. And, you know, there's little things that I remember from that experience is, you know, one night at like 11 o'clock at night, I realized that my son 
didn't have socks for going to school the next morning that I needed to do laundry. So, you know, I had to do laundry. And that's when I realized that my wife, my ex-wife, was doing so much work to keep everything going in the family, which I had never taken the time to acknowledge and appreciate. And as I was going through all of those experiences, I, I remember there was a moment when my daughter said to me, Papa, you're doing a good job being Papa. Mm. And that was a very touching, touching moment. So all of a sudden I had two consulting <laughs> things going on, which started to bring cash in. Did you feel huge relief at that point? Or were you- yeah, it was, it was um, let me tell you, when you have not had personal income come for a while, a long while, yeah. I cried when I had the first check. I remember it. It was very emotional to go to the bank to deposit the check. I drove to the bank. I wanted to make sure that I <laughs> deposited it. You were going to mail that one in? Uh-uh. No, no, no. I drove. What was the emotion you were feeling? Just gratitude, man. I mean, it's just um, because both of them happened unexpectedly. And the thing is, the meditation outcome of not filing for bankruptcy became relevant in 2004 when over time this insurance company ended up hiring me to come on board. I ended up becoming an officer of a publicly traded insurance company. And if you have a personal bankruptcy in your record, that can never happen. The interview with your wife was just touching. The interview with your dad was just charming. And both of those interviews had me on edge the entire time because there's something at risk. You've got a deep-rooted personal relationship with both of these people. And the one, your wife, like, man, that's dangerous. <laughs> that was Let's real danger. It. It's real danger. And you can hear in this interview, you can hear in my voice that I was nervous. And and I, maybe that just made it more real for people. Let's listen to that. All right. In what ways do we as a family waste money? <laughs> I know what I'm supposed to say. Let's have it. Come on, bring it out. Let's go. <laughs> well, okay. So this is what I've been told. What you've been told? Yes. What does that mean? I'm going to go at two ways here. I, I'm asking you. <laughs> Idle time is not your friend. Mm-hmm. Vacation. I mean, that whole episode, I almost pulled over. You talked about being on vacation and just not mm-hmm. being able to enjoy it. And yeah. I don't have that problem. <laughs> What is something that bothers you about the way I think about money? Honestly, 85% of the time, I feel so lucky because you are so much better at all of that than I am. 85% of the time. Yes. Well, I think because... (laughs) That's like a B. That's like a... You know what it is, is because like doing this podcast Mm -hmm. and, you know, you are already obsessed about smoothies and money anyway. Mm -hmm. And this definitely exacerbated that. Doing the podcast has? Yes. When we were away this summer, mm-hmm. I mean, you obsessed. You go to dinner. Was that a really good way to spend? Blah, 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 blah. And it's like, yes, I think it was great. We were with friends and family. You make it so, sound like I'm not the fun person to go on vacation with. You're very fun if you're in the right mindset. And so it's it's tricky. But it's also, thank goodness you're funny. Uh-huh. Does that answer your question? No, I want you to keep going. 
About what bothers me? Yeah, but? like why do you think 85% of the time, what's my mindset like? And then 15% of the time, what's my mindset like? 85% of the time, you are just really great about it. I don't have any issues at all. And I feel like we've come up with some systems that are pretty fair. I still probably get a pretty good end of the deal. And then the other times, it's just when you are all worked up in your mind and it kind of manifests with certain things. So an example would be, cleaning out all the old towels we've had for nine to 15 years and the kids and I are doing something good by collecting them all. We're taking them down to the shelter. Mm -hmm. And when you walked in and saw the boxes, I have to tell you what's going on because if you're surprised, it's not good. And so you walk in and you're like, what's all this? And I told you what was happening and you were like, well, why'd we buy this in the first place? And I just kind (laughs) of looked at you and we're not- by what? Towels? By the towels that you've had right. since we lived in LA. Like, right. or some of the- but They still work. Oh my gosh. That clip with Stacy. I've had people that, a woman that I went to business school with reached out and said, you know, this made me feel better about my own marriage because Scott's not nearly as big as an asshole as you are. And I was like, oh, okay. I just think I'm, I wouldn't say it's my biggest fear, but I have a fear of losing all my money. Like I remember reading in history books, like, he died penniless. And I was like, that's the biggest tragedy to me, not just because you didn't have enough money to eat on your last few days, but because you like you were a fool, you squandered it. And to me, that just demonstrated such weak moral character that like that's my big fear, that I won't have the discipline to preserve the incredible financial gifts that have been that have come my way. I don't think it's moral weakness. I think I don't know. That's this is, this is too deep to go into right now because I don't know what clips we can tie into this. <laughs> I know which one we can play next. I want to play Yancey Sproul. This is also consistent with Adam's story about growing up broke. So Yancey Sproul, he's my business school classmate. We were sweet mates our first year at business school. Then we lived together for three years in New York City as strapping young men, single, looking for love and professional success in the big city together on the Upper West Side. And Yancey grew up in inner city Buffalo in very rough conditions. From the time I met him, he was like one of the most ambitious, hardworking guys I knew. And I always admired him for that because I think you can, strivers can sort of see each other. We have, we have striver dar that helps us identify each other. And he's now the CEO of a pretty big company and he's, he's just killing it. So I think his story of where he came from was pretty special. I would say we were working for both of my parents, for the most part, had jobs, some isolated instances where they didn't. You know, we were check to check. We grew up in a community that was either working poor or on you know, welfare. And uh, so I grew up in a, in a world where people struggled economically, and that was just life. Spent a lot of my time focusing on having fun and doing well in school so I can get out of that situation. Did you pick up a lot of stress from your folks in that environment? Absolutely. I think... It's interesting to have the perspective now, how circumstances have changed for me, but I still have a lot of that stress. But there was clearly a lot of stress when growing up in Buffalo, having the heat cut off is not very interesting. And we've had that uh, happen a few times in the fall, being evicted from an apartment because father lost a job. That's very stressful. So not being able to eat good food. There's clearly the lack of money and the lack of flexibility that provided us was the backdrop for my first 18 years maybe a little bit longer, where it was just hard to, to do everything on you know, very limited income. 
As a person with money raising kids, I know this is a big focus for your new book and for the podcast. Is one of the bigger fears that you have is that your kids are not going to be motivated because they've got stuff? Yes, absolutely. You know, it doesn't mean that I wouldn't be a more content person if I was less hungry, Mm -hmm. you know? Maybe I'd just be a little bit mellower and have, you know, like, just be like, you know what? It's not that important, you know, and we'll figure it out. Would I be less happy if I was like that? When you're a parent, like I can see the unique patterns of each of my kids and I don't necessarily believe that either of them will be happier just because they achieve more success in their career. I wasn't thinking happier. I was just thinking more motivated, like what is going to get them off their butts to go out and make something or do something if it's not fighting against dad who wouldn't turn the air conditioning on. I mean, I don't think I ever overtly did that, but I do believe I went into business because I was a very practical approach. And this is partly generational because I think depression era parents raise you to, you know, hey, you're going to college to get a job. That's why you're going to college. And so you go, oh, okay, that's why I'm going to college. And I remember thinking, I I really liked the theater when I was a senior in high school. And I was like, who studies that, Mm -hmm. you know? I'm not going to get a job in the theater. And so I never considered the arts again until 1995 when I was at business school and told jokes at a talent show and then was like, I think I want to be a comedian, right? It does remind me a bit of how millennials are these days. In, uh, in, in what ways? In, in not in terms of them needing status or symbols of status, but that they they want to sort of be given their ultimate muse like this is you know immediately i want to be whatever it is they just want it immediately and uh, addicts are that way too when you say they want their muse meaning they want to find something that they want to do their thing without worrying about money like there's some, some of that there's some of that that somehow capitalism and money is some sort of a disdainful mm-hmm. anachronism mm-hmm. but it's more than that it's it's that I hear them all the time, like, I haven't figured out what I ultimately want to do yet. And right. until I find that ultimate thing, right. I'm not even going to work. <laughs> what? What? Well, the, the idea of starting somewhere and building up and finding and things leading and past, no. I see what you're saying. None of that. My dad used to say to me in college, he's like, my job is to make sure that you have a roof over your head and meals to eat. If you want to drink beer on the weekends, you can pay for it. So go get a job. <laughs> you know? Since we're on the topic of happiness and some degree of budgeting, let's jump to Sir Angus Deaton from Princeton, who is the co-author of a study that found, among other things, that above $75,000 in annual income, people don't experience any more happiness. But go to the, the most widely cited conclusion of this work, which I think is often misunderstood. And the conclusion is that people use for whatever reason they want to cite it, that happiness caps out at $75,000 a year. Is that what you found, actually? Yeah, Yeah. but it is happiness and not life evaluation. Meaning that people who had more than $75,000 didn't say they smiled more, laughed more, or were less stressed than people with less than $75,000. That's exactly correct. One way to think about it is the other way, is if you have less than $75,000, You can't really undertake a lot of these activities which are productive of socializing, for instance. You know, you can't go out to dinner with your friends. You can't go to the ball game. You know, you feel shamed, perhaps, because someone (laughs) says, you know, let's go on vacation together or let's have another nice weekend in the city. It's not the nice weekend in the city. It's the being with friends. You know, if you ask people, and you've obviously thought about this quite hard, 
what are the things you do in your life where you express a lot of happiness? And, you know, a lot of that is spending time with friends. Right. It's socializing. It's helping other people. You know, it's all the thing that religious readers talk about a lot of the time. So maybe, you know, the way to get high on the ladder is to have a lot of those other things so that you live your life in a way that you do feel good a lot of the time. I remember many, many years ago talking um, socially to a shrink who said, we call that disease Nobel Prize-itis, right? Mm. Which is that, you know, no one's paying any attention, no one's recognizing your work, you know, and if only you can get the Nobel Prize, everybody would recognize you and those would go away. Right. Well, and he said, the one thing we've learned in my profession is that getting the Nobel Prize does not cure Nobel Prize-itis. Right. <laughs> you know, and it's true. You know, if you're insecure about people not paying any attention to you, you'll be insecure after you win the Nobel Prize just right. as much as before. So it's true. I mean, I knew that would happen from day one. On the other hand, it's a wonderful thing for those three months or whatever it is. Right. Um, and, you know, everybody's incredibly nice to you. <laughs> one of the things Random that podcasters find you on the internet. The <laughs> random podcasters find you on the internet. You know what else I liked about the Deaton interview? Sir Angus Deaton, sorry. Sir Angus Deaton to you, pal. We all have a concept of happiness, and I'm learning that it's not what I once thought it was. I liked hearing the latter stuff because you realize content and happy are very different things. And happiness seems to me, my interpretation now is that it's fleeting compared to life satisfaction. I don't know. I kind of feel like you could be doing something that you hate, making $5 million a year, and you would feel compelled to say that your life was going well, even if in your soul you didn't feel like you were doing what you were supposed to be doing. Yeah. Richard Corey went home last night and put a bullet through his head. Don't forget that poem. Richard Corey, C-O-R-Y, Google it. It's so easy to hear the words of what's going to make you happy. Relationships, doing something you love and all this, but actually putting it into effect is difficult because we can sit here and talk about the satisfaction we both get out of doing podcasts, but the truth of the matter is we both want our podcasts to be wildly popular so we can get more attention. Sure. And money, probably. Yeah. But the thing is, is if that number keeps moving, as soon as you have 25,000 listeners, you're going to want 50. And as soon as you have 50, you're going to want 100. I mean, I look forward to having that dilemma. That just brought up a lot of images of the podcast when you said the number keeps moving, because I've, I've learned to accept and understand that through your podcast, that no matter what you achieve, the number now moves and your sense is that, oh, I'm still the, in the same position I was before. And you don't appreciate, you have gratitude for where you're at now. Does that make any sense? It makes absolute sense. And unless you have gratitude at every moment along the way, we're not going to be, it's, we're still going to drive ourselves crazy. You know dozens of celebrities in Los Angeles, some of the most popular, successful people in the entertainment industry who have more success than almost anyone can imagine. And would you describe them as happy people? No, and I know exactly what you're saying. No, I've had it. Hey, man, I, I had this with, yeah, I've, I've been through this with people. Those are what you know people would call first-class problems. Not that they're not problems. They're still problems, and you're sort of stuck with yourself. Oh, the problem's me? The problem isn't money. The problem's me. I'm broken. So let's talk about tragedy and where money comes in around tragedy. Really interesting guest we had this year was a woman named Chanel Reynolds who wrote a book called what Matters Most, the Get Your Shit Together Guide of Wills, Money, Insurance, and Life's What Ifs. And while 
life insurance and wills and stuff sounds pretty boring. Her path to become someone offering advice to everybody else to get their shit together was a pretty awful one. July 17, 2009 was a regular day with, you know, a kid in preschool and two parents with jobs and you're picking up and I'm dropping off and I'm going to this barbecue and you'll meet me later. I was over at a friend's house and I picked up my phone and noticed that I had dozens of missed calls and voicemails from numbers I didn't recognize. Basically, my late husband, Jose, had been in a terrible accident. It was bad and they took him to the hospital and I didn't know if he was alive or not. I made it there hoping that he was still alive and the ER doc had said that there was basically a 50-50 chance. Whatever happened next, there were two paths and I felt completely unprepared for either of them. And, and from that point forward, there was just a big confusion and grief and worry. And I was trying to stay in my body and be present and listen to what the doctors were saying. And then in addition to that, there were these questions that were coming like, where's your insurance card? And do you guys have your affairs in order? And what kind of insurance do you have? Is your son in a place? And what's the password to his phone? And so in addition to just trying to figure out what the hell was happening with my life and There were a lot of questions that I didn't have any answers to and having some answers then even like the password to his phone so I could get in and call some of his members of his family, like that would have been just one less thing I had to worry about during a unimaginably terrible time. I don't want to bring this podcast to a a sad place, but today is the anniversary of my sister getting killed. So I'm a little distracted. And this reminds me of when she died. We didn't have anything together. And I remember the conversations with my dad, even a year or two years after that. And he was like, I don't have a will. And I never did this. And I never did that. And I just figured when I die, you guys can fight over the building. Oh, thanks, You need to take care of this stuff, man. You need to have that conversation with a man. You've got to because I know the crazy shit that goes on in your family. It's going to be ugly. Get that. Of course, it's going to be ugly, you know, because right after she died, he just destroyed all of her information. He destroyed her driver's license, her insurance, everything. And my brother's wife was trying to pick up, pick up the pieces after that. And he's like, I need that insurance information. He's like, I shredded it. Yeah. You know, I I mean, that was part of his, his grieving sitch, but you think about this and you think about how many couples don't know simple things like the cell phone code. The same is true for your parents or your adult children. You never know what's going to happen and you need to have, you got to have your ducks in a row because life is crazy. So yeah. get that I mean, shit We've together. all thought about clearing out our, our porn library so that no one finds that after we're dead. Well, she mentioned that she yeah. mentioned that there's all kinds of personal stuff. You're right. She did. Toys. You're right. She did. Yeah. Those are her words. I'm not coming up with that to be. She mentions it in the words. book, but you kind of touched on it in the, in the interview. Of course, I'm going to ask her about that. But it's like, hey, look, you never know what's going to happen. And, you know, memento mori and all that stuff. So do your best to do the hard work now so that your heirs and the people you leave behind don't have to. Like the other ones, it was kind of hopeful in the end because she has persevered. She has survived and she's raised her son with just incredible strength and grace, not always with the strength or grace that she wanted to by her own admission. But it was really encouraging to me to see that that she had found some meaning in the tragedy. I'm curious. I don't know if this was ever part of an intentional plan, but you know, the fact is you're sitting down and talking to people now. And I wonder 
how you think that's grown over the past year because I imagine in the beginning you didn't know what to expect and you overprepared and maybe overthought it. And I wonder where you're at now mentally sitting down talking to somebody face-to-face and or on the phone or internet. I never dreamed of being an interviewer the way I dreamed of being a stand-up comedian, but I asked myself, I don't know, a decade ago, if I could do anything for a living, I said I'd like to be Charlie Rose. And this was before all the scandal happened and everything. So <laughs> please, nobody, nobody tweet about I'd this. I'd like to be Charlie but, Rose, Matt Lauer, or Harvey Weinstein. <laughs> But no, I thought that like sitting down with some of the most intelligent and interesting people on the planet and being able to have an interesting discussion from which other people could learn is a pretty high order level of work. And so I thought that would be really cool, but I never really, you know, fantasized about it or taken interviewing lessons or anything. And I do believe I'm getting better at it. As you and I discussed the other day, I think some of the things I'm trying to get better at is like when you interview an author for a book, you want to give them the opportunity to talk about their book and kind of share with the audience their insights into the work that they've spent years doing. So you want to give them that thing, but you don't want to fall into this formula of just going like, okay, in chapter one, what happens and what happens in chapter two? And then in chapter three, you had an incident in Tupelo, Mississippi. What was that all about? And I'm also finding that the longer I talk to somebody, at the end of the interview, the questions are about like, okay, what's, what are you all about? And that's the most important question to get to. What was the most enjoyable interview for you where you didn't feel pressure or you were actually able to get into a conversation? Is there something that pops out that you go, that was a nice conversation and I'm glad we recorded it? One of the things that sometimes happens is like what happened with Sir Angus Deaton in his office in Princeton is that we're talking, we have this hour long conversation and I'm not intimidated, but a little bit fanboyed. I'm like, Hey, I'm talking to this kind of, you know, famous academic guy. I want a Nobel yeah. prize. This is very cool. I was proud that I got, he's a knight. Yeah. And an hour before I'd spoken to the guy we're about to talk about, Peter Singer, who is in the world of international development. He's a monster. He's a big deal. And he's the most low key person you'll ever meet. But I was thrilled to have both of those conversations that day. But as I'm finishing the conversation with Professor Deaton, after I turn off the recorder, he says, so you're a comedian. Have you watched the new Dave Chappelle special? (laughs) And he's like, and what did you think of it? So there's a 77, I believe, year old man in a bow tie and a suit asking me how I felt about the Chappelle special. And I was like, God, I wish I had recorded that. Peter Singer is the author of a book called The Life You Can Save. He wrote another one called The Most You Can Give. The New Yorker referred to him as the world's most influential living philosopher. He's a professor of bioethics at Princeton. He's a very interesting guy and was quite gracious to speak to me on that warm afternoon in Princeton, New Jersey. As I read your book, I started to think, and this is a horrible, but perhaps natural response. As I'm reading this, let's just say I do all this. Let's say I give away a third of my income. I was thinking to myself, what's the reward? I rather think that the rewards are internal. The rewards are the sense of of fulfillment that you can have from knowing that you've done a lot of good in the world, Mm. that your life has been a positive thing, not only for you, but for others, Um, that it hasn't just been that, you know, you've lived and uh, had some various pleasant experiences and then you've died, which in a sense is kind of meaningless. And Mm. I think, you know, we like to have some sense of meaning and even if we don't find that in any kind of religious conception, we can still have it in thinking, it mattered that I lived and it mattered for the good that I lived. It made the lives of others better. It made the world in a a limited way a better place. 
because of the fact that I was here and the choices that I made. So that question where I asked him what my reward for, he said, well, that's a pretty primitive way to look at it. (laughs) That's what I think all the time. And he gave a solid answer. And I appreciated that because I do question that when I'm donating. And then at the end of that, when he said, you know, you want to live a life where it mattered that you were alive, that you made a difference just being alive. And that absolutely cemented why we should give in my head. I didn't have an answer to that either. You know, philanthropy has come up a lot more than I probably anticipated at the beginning of starting this podcast journey. But I've spoken to a lot of people, Will McCaskill, a professor at Oxford, who like Peter Singer, he was inspired by Peter Singer and like Peter Singer has dedicated a lot of work to effective altruism, discussing not just how much to give, but how to give and how to give in a way that's most efficient. Because one of the many things I didn't know about money before I made it was that I just figured when you make a lot of money, you just write some checks and that's philanthropy. And you're like, ah, look at me. I just gave you know $10,000 to the library or whatever, that that's a good strategy. But it's if you really want to get the most for your money in philanthropic endeavors, you need to have a plan. You need to have kind of like a, a strategy for giving it away in a way that is going to generate the most happiness for you. And a lot of people think like, I'm going to give away my money, but I'm also going to put my time where I put my money so that I can see how the money is being spent. I can influence how it's being spent and hopefully make it spent in the way that helps the world the most or gets me the most publicity possible. One of the things that really, really had an impact on me, and I'm not sure how to put it into effect, but it was Dominic Holder. And he talked about the exercise he does with his students where he wants them to sort of project into the future to their dream job and then project to their funeral and live your life based on what you want to hear at your eulogy. Do I want people to say I sat inside with the windows closed and stared at my computer all day? That's what I'm going to say. (laughs) It's perfect. That's part of the overall lesson. It's that, again, making a conscious choice. And it comes back to what you were saying about Brian Portnoy. Making a conscious choice of how you want to live starts with what do I want to get out of life and what role does money play therein? Not, I want to make the most money I possibly can. How do I gear my life around that ambition? Let's talk about Mike Norton from Harvard Business School. Mike Norton is the co-author of a book called Happy Money that he wrote with Liz Dunn, his co-author. It's interesting because it's about being intentional and using money in ways that actually will make us happier. In this research, we looked at time use and I think the lay theory is that millionaires have extremely different lives than the rest of us in terms of how they spend their time. And they don't really actually. So they work kind of the same amount. They have the same amount of leisure. They sleep about the same. So they're not like a new breed of human once you become a millionaire. But what we do find is a couple of key differences. One is millionaires, when they engage in leisure, it tends to be more active. So they're exercising and volunteering and socializing. In regular folks, leisure is more watching TV and relaxing. And one reason for that, of course, is that regular people's jobs are more likely to be physically demanding. And so, you know, after you work a 12-hour shift as a nurse, it's a little bit difficult to go home and go for a bike ride. Yeah, if you've been on your feet for 12 hours, you don't want to, you don't feel like hitting the treadmill. The other even bigger one is that millionaires have more control over their time. So when we ask, for example, at work, what percent of the time are you doing things because you want to do them versus because someone told you to do it? Of course, millionaires more often are doing whatever they feel like, and regular folks have bosses, and they're doing what their boss is telling them to do. 
And that predicts happiness as well. This was a book co-written with Liz Dunn, who's at the University of British Columbia. Liz is the actual happiness expert. So she um, (laughs) convinced me to write a book on happiness with her. So I actually got to learn a lot. We ran lots of studies all over the world in the end showing that the very first thing you can do is if you're thinking of spending on yourself, instead, try spending it on somebody else. The second thing you can do, which is also very simple, is it turns out that buying stuff doesn't tend to make us particularly happy. Oh, man. I'm sorry. I, everyone is, you can see in the audience, some people that feels validating and other people <laughs> feel deeply disappointed when I say that, Right, right. I think. But, but the good news is that experiences do seem to pay off in happiness. So instead of buying another thing, buying an experience with, and not just a vacation, but an evening out, you know, smaller experiences as well. So that's number two. So just instead of stuff for yourself, try experiences and try someone else. And the third big category, and this is research led by Ashley Willens, who's my colleague at HBS, is anytime you spend money, think about how it's going to affect your time. Mm. And if it's not going to affect your time well, do not buy that thing. There's so many guests that I thoroughly enjoyed talking to. And one of them was a guy whose book I had read, I think a year before we even started the podcast. His name is Richard Reeves. He wrote a book called Dream Hoarders, which discusses the huge advantages enjoyed by the upper middle class in the United States. And I just found it really compelling because for so many years, this story has been the 1% is bad. The 1% is bad. Let's focus all of our ire and resentment toward the 1%. And Richard Reeves says, let's look at ourselves in the mirror. Let's recognize that it's not just the 1%. It's like the top 20% of the United States that has a lock on all the advantages from the tax cuts to the spots at most universities. And he basically makes the argument that the United States is less socially mobile than even what we believe to be a rigid class structure than like the one he grew up with in the UK. So along those lines, I have a pre-recorded question from my eight-year-old daughter who wanted to chime in and know where she sits in this whole thing. So this is Izzy Van Ollinger. Dr. Reeves, should I be penalized just because I have awesome parents? That's a great question. Should I be penalized for having such awesome parents? Well, first of all, congratulations on being awesome parents. And can I, can I tell you that my, <laughs> my, you. my kids are somewhat older than yours, and it's a long time since I've heard a sentence like that from the lips of my own children. So it's, it's, it's heartwarming. She read the <laughs> script, and the bloopers will be at the end of this episode after the credits. So, <laughs> uh, so uh, the answer is, the, is that no. If you have awesome parents, then that makes you very, very lucky indeed. As, as it happens, I had awesome parents as well. And I think that it's one of the reasons that I've been able to make my own way through the world and gotten where I am. I think that a huge amount of credit is to the kind of parents that I have. And so it's a great gift that you have um, the kinds of parents you have. But although it's hard for you to hear this at the age of eight, you didn't do anything to deserve them. They take a lot of credit for the way they're raising you. But you yourself just got lucky in the lottery of life to be born to such great parents. And you should be glad of it. You should seize the advantages that having great parents have. And most importantly, you should look after them in old age. <laughs> they're not getting any younger. He has a PhD from Oxford. Sweetheart. <laughs> so, listen to, but, right. uh, but don't make the mistake of thinking that it's your merit that somehow you deserve the advantages you got from having awesome parents. You are welcome to them and they're a great gift, but you didn't deserve them. In the same way, someone who, who rolled a different number on the dice and ended up with, with parents who were less awesome for one reason or another and therefore really struggled, didn't deserve that either. And so if you end up slightly ahead of that person, 
uh, in school or somewhere else. Don't think it's because you are better. Just recognize that actually everybody draws a different straw and try to recognize that and try to support the kinds of things that will help that other child who is a bit less lucky than you. So all of us who are, you know, I, I talk about how I grew up in an austere environment. I was very arguably a member of the upper middle class and had many advantages. Of, of course, the most important one was the fact that I was born to two parents who loved me, wanted me, were committed to educating me and stayed together for 55 years. But there's no question that I won the genetic lottery and I had 10 times the chances as somebody born six miles away in a different zip code to different parents. When it comes to somebody who knows who he is, I don't think there's anybody quite like my dad. My father is 92 years old. He is on track to turn 93 in April. He raised six kids as an engineer at Georgia Power Company here in Atlanta. <laughs> I remember my dad, when we were in high school, like my mom had a car and we had, I think we had two other cars, but you beat up old used cars, right? And there was always these fights about who got to take the car to school. And, you know, like uh, my brother needed it because he had basketball practice after school and my sister needed it for something else and blah. And my dad was like, fine, you guys take the cars. I'm going to take the bus to work. And my dad would walk a mile to the wow. bus stop with his briefcase and brown paper lunch bag and his tie and short sleeve shirt. He would walk to the bus stop and he would take the bus and he just didn't give a shit. He was just like, it doesn't matter enough to me. He's the most humble servant, the most composed man I've ever met because I just believe he knew who he was and he didn't have any desire to have things that would impress other people or accomplish things that would impress other people. He was just there to live his life and be with his family. And as I think about purpose and, you know, accomplishment and all this stuff, you know, I think we'd all just be better off if we just acted. Yeah. Like how did him. he become like that? And Do you think it was the way he was raised or you think it's, it was just in his genes? You know, he's one of seven children and he grew up, his parents were relatively affluent in Mobile, Alabama, very Catholic. Faith is a very important part of his identity. I think he left the deep South because there were some attitudes that didn't resonate with him. And so when he got home from the Navy, he didn't rush home to Mobile to join the country club and that kind of stuff. He never really felt any desire to be a part of society, I don't think. Was it humility? He's the most humble dude. You, I mean, he's the... He's just he's just a humble guy who I think knows where value comes from in the world. And and because of that, you know, my dad again, he lived an austere lifestyle. And due to the fact that he's lived below his means and the time value of money, he's you know, he's he's gonna die with a pretty tasty yeah. nest egg that the irony is he could buy any of the things that today that I thought we needed way back when. And what I think is interesting is like I don't believe he had the desire for a lot of stuff. I do think he was more stressed about money than he led on to believe. And when I told my brother that one day we were driving the car home from the hospital, my dad and I, because in the last few years, all of my siblings and I have spent a lot of time helping to take care of dad. And I was taking him home from the hospital one day. And I said, well, you know, if you would have made a little bit more money, do you think you would have been less stressed about money? And he said, I don't remember ever being stressed about money. And I almost drove off the road because I do think there was stress in our house, but it was never like he wanted something to impress somebody else or to, you know, or to, he wanted to give his kids more material stuff. Cause I think part of him is like, you don't need any of that crap. I just think about your dad's humility and stuff and wonder, like, do you feel guilty? Cause you're such an egomaniac. 
<laughs> the end. I don't, you know, no, no do you I feel don't. guilty that you're, you know, you're a comic, you're a stand up, you like getting in front of people. Do you ever feel like, why do I need this acceptance from strangers yeah. and why do I need this attention? Yes, I think about it all the time. And that's one of the reasons why I find Stoicism and Buddhism and Christian philosophy, by the way, also compelling, especially like the part of Buddhism that, you know, I just come back to desire is the root of all suffering. And where I've made the biggest mistakes in my life, it's all about desire. Where where I've made myself most miserable in my life, it's about desire. And that might be desire for money, desire for fame, desire for recognition, desire to of be course. desired. Yeah. Like all those things lead you to do shit that you shouldn't do. <laughs> Including quitting your job and becoming a comedian. No, I'm just kidding. Yeah. In comedy, when you're hanging out with all these people, like you see just wantingness everywhere and la is even i mean la is the city of wantingness it's and, neediness that's not just yeah. want it's like i need yeah. need is want square yeah. in this way you're using it here but yeah and i mean like when stacy and i bought a house in la and i started meeting people in la who weren't in the technology or the entertainment business just regular people i was like oh there's regular people in this town we just had neighbors that were like nice people and i was like oh you mean LA? LA is a great place to live if you don't want anything. It's just such a contrast between the degree of like the single people in LA who are trying to make yeah. something of themselves and date somebody who they think is better than them as defined by has more money or more fame. What's in it for me? I'm trying to get ahead. Like, I don't oh think God. I have it in the valley so much as when I drive over the hill. When I get to West Hollywood where I yeah. lived in the 90s, I am like this entire four mile, five mile area is just nothing but people striving to make something of themselves, to prove something to someone else, to get ahead. I don't even know if it's a good or bad thing, but I don't want to be part of it. Even though I'm secretly trying to get ahead and I secretly am trying to make something of myself. Secretly trying to do is make something of value. And I think that's what I like about this podcast is even if everybody's shut off by this point in the best of show, we're striving to make something that matters. And I think you are too in your own thing. But when it comes to wanting this, when I see that in myself, I'm like, okay, be aware of that, move away from that. And that's the thing I even hate about like promoting my shows on Facebook and sending out emails and stuff that feels very wanting to me. It is, but it's necessary. And, it's it's unfortunate. It, I know it is, but it makes me feel inauthentic. And anyway, the whole point of this is to contrast my wantingness with my father's who I don't believe whatever wantingness he had in his life, he did a great job of putting into perspective. And I think when you listen to this clip, you'll, you'll agree. Is there any other advice you'd like to offer on how to live a good financial life? Uh, spend less than you make. <laughs> I mean, it, it, it comes down to that spend less than you make. When you're single, you make the decisions. Mm-hmm. If they're the wrong, you, you suffer for it, whatnot. Right. But when you're married, well, first of all, the wife's got certain ideas. <laughs> uh huh. And part of maybe your mother wasn't this way, but I can understand that certain people feel they have to put up a show mm-hmm. that they they look like they're rich, right? They look like they can afford what they're spending. I didn't have that problem. Right. I mean, I, I'm lucky that way, but I can understand that they, that that could be a problem. Yeah. And the wife could be very unhappy when you want to 
save for tomorrow because, you know, this kid in the crib may want to go to college. You know? Yes. I remember one time I asked you, how does somebody prepare to have six children, which you which you had? You had six kids. Oh, you just trust in the Lord. Right. And that was essentially the answer you gave me then. And I just yeah. was wondering if you would change your mind. <laughs> the Lord's been good to me. Oh, okay. All right. Well. So, so you don't prepare. You just do it. You're a devout Catholic. You start forming a family. At what point, if ever, does do we have enough money to pay for all these mouths enter into the conversation? Or do you just go pick up shifts at O'Leary's Pub if if, if uh, ends don't meet? I never, never thought about it. Never thought about it? <laughs> no. Never occurred to you to think, do I have enough money to have another baby? No. <laughs> That's the most Catholic thing I've ever heard in my entire life. All right, Mike, here we are. We've reached the end of the Best of Clip show. I sure have enjoyed it. This has been a lot of fun remembering the very good work that we've done together. And thank you for tricking me into starting this podcast. I want to thank you because I desperately need the money for one. And I truly, (laughs) from my heart, Paul, am thankful for this podcast because it really has been an amazing addition to me working on getting over my bullshit. This really has been an experience for me. It's stuff I would have never learned. There's stuff I've heard in your podcast, lessons I've learned that ring true in my head. I don't always adhere to them or, or take them into account when I make decisions, but a lot of times I do and it's for the better. And thank you for that. And thank you for your friendship and thank you for everything else as well. Well, I'm happy to be in your life and glad that it's headed in the right direction and look forward to what should the next year be like for crazy money? What should we try to accomplish? I think about the discussion we had a few days ago, and I really do think you wanted to make it more personal and just get down to the nitty gritty and have a conversation more than you read a book, you write these well-crafted questions, and sometimes it gets a little clinical and I know you want to do something other than that. And I do think that's the direction to go. Just get right to the heart of it. I think I should have tried to make Angus Deaton cry. Was it Barbara Walters that used to make people cry? It was Who was it? that? <laughs> I've made a couple of people cry in the last year. Uh, I think you're right. Let's get to the heart. Let's get deeper. Let's, let's open up the hearts as quick as we can. Get to the conversations that are going to make everybody kind of relate to the other person. So, all right, man. I'd like to end with my favorite quote in the entire run of the show so far, which was your charming little old man dad at the very end of the podcast. Okay. Thank you, Dad. You're welcome. And uh, where will this be printed? <laughs>